Barbell Buddha Rediscovered, episode 90. This one is called Big Strength from Small Moves. What's going on, y'all? It's Brooks. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the last episode with what I called a live listen episode. I listened to that, again, completely live. I'm I'm with you the whole way. Today is going to be a little bit different. I sat down with Chris today to listen to this episode I am practicing a particular style, and I was like, oh, I'll pull some clips from this show. But as I listen to the show, this is like a tale of two halves type of show. The first half of Chris's episode was him just sort of catching you up on some of his things that he was doing, things like uh, doing a little powerlifting meet, how it went from it, how it went for him, what he learned, stuff like that. And then he kicks it over to a clip of a workshop that they had done in Miami that is talking about training. And Chris's particular section was about the small moves that you can add into your physical training and why that is important. And much like of anything Chris teaches, you can take the lessons that he's delivering about training, you can pluck them out, and you can apply them to life. So what I'm going to do on this show is I'm going to fill up the first half by telling you a story. And then I'm going to kick it back over to Chris, and we're going to play that clip from his workshop. So if you want to stick around and listen to him deliver some high-end information about training while at the same time using that workshop or seminar to learn a deeper lesson, which is if you want to get the big things accomplished in life, it's always going to come down to the small moves that you do daily. That is at a very, you know, like big, broad statement. That is one of Chris's biggest message that he continues to hammer home. If you want to get the big things done, it's all about the small things that you do accrued over time. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you about some of the small decisions that I made, the small moves that I made to continue building my so-called strength in life. And the reason I'm going to do that is because this is, in Chris's episode, Chris's episode was released June 28th, 2015. On this date in 2015, I am deep now into the CrossFit circle back in Memphis, and I am hanging out with a lot of these guys, and there's content coming out that is so, uh, in, in the Barbara Shrug timeline, that is just like so my time in CrossFit. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history, how I'm related to CrossFit, how it came into my life, and I'm going to give a little bit of context and history about CrossFit in general and my relationship to it. So let's talk about how I discovered CrossFit. I was introduced to CrossFit in 2009. My mom of all, of all if we're going to go anywhere it's like my my relationship to crossfit is uh, is somehow is loosely linked to my mother in that side of the family my mother is the youngest of four girls and two of her sisters lived in santa cruz california and so i spent a lot of time you know i say a lot of time i've spent many trips out in that in that area so i'm very familiar with the santa cruz capitola 
Bay Area, Monterey, things like that. And if you know anything about the history of CrossFit, you'll know that Greg Glassman founded CrossFit in the late 90s as a gym in Santa Cruz, California. Okay, And he had what they called the first original five fire breathers. Okay, So these are basically Greg's first clients. One of them is Ava Torducken, or known as Ava T. Her history was that she was a, uh, I believe, Polish-American, Polish-American Olympic-level slalom skier, incredibly elite athlete, Ava T. There was Annie Sakamoto. So if you've ever done the workout Annie, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, double-unders and sit-ups, that was named after Annie Sakamoto. And Annie was a sick surfer. Okay, and she was actually my cousin Rose's first CrossFit coach. All right, you follow me so far? So I'm, my, my family is very closely connected to this, to this uh, group of people. And all of this is happening because Santa Cruz is, it's not a huge place, you know, so you, you know a lot of the people in the area. So you had Ava T, you had Annie Sakamoto, you had Greg Anmanson, and Greg Anmanson was, I believe, like in what would be the either the actual SWAT team or some SWAT team equivalent level of policing out in Santa Cruz, California. So he also had a rich physical history and had a need to do CrossFit uh, to increase his strength and conditioning. Uh, I'm forgetting member number four, but I'll get to no- member number five because it's member number five that introduced me to CrossFit. And his name is Rob Miller. Now, I remember, if you, if you know old, old-school CrossFit history, you know Handsome Rob. He had long, surfer, blonde hair. He was in his 40s, and he was so jacked and shredded for a guy in his 40s, it was making most of the men in their 20s jealous. And I remember seeing a YouTube video of Rob doing muscle-ups, making them look so easy. And I just remember thinking, man, I hope when I'm in my 40s I can look like that guy. And so that sparked, I mean, that is, let's just be honest, a lot of the initial appeal for people when it came to CrossFit was seeing what seemed to be like physical specimen human beings that were just doing these crazy exercises, and we wanted to be bigger, faster, stronger, and more jacked like those people, and Rob was the guy. Now, Rob was a climber, all right, so he was a actual professional rock climber, I believe he even like taught Chris Sharma. So if you know anything about climbing, you'll know Chris Sharma's the man. And so Rob was his coach as a younger guy when Chris was a younger guy. And Rob had had some of the first uh, ascents of Yosemite National Park, which is like the mecca of American climbing. What I'm getting at is the initial uh, CrossFitters, extremely elite, incredibly highly elite athletes who did their sport or their thing of choice around, you know, like six days a week. They were climbing, they were surfing, they were doing their sport. And then twice a week on average, usually only twice a week, they would come in and do these high doses of intensity and CrossFit made them better physical specimens. But the thing to keep in mind about the early days of CrossFit is that these people were only doing it two days a week on average. Okay, they were going hard, like the what we consider that CrossFit spike, that hard anaerobic two stuff. That was only being done twice a week, and the rest of their time was dedicated to their sport. This is important to understand in the history of CrossFit because CrossFit will later evolve into a sport. So in 2007, the first CrossFit Games happened. This is just before I'm coming into the mix. Rob is starting to be out of the initial CrossFit scene because it's starting to become a sport and it's just the culture shifting a little bit and he, he's got his own thing that he's doing. And he gave me a book in 2009. The first CrossFit Games was won by a guy named James Fitzgerald. All right, And James will come back into this conversation a little bit later. So you have these early CrossFitters. Rob is one of them. Rob is part of my extended family. Uh, my my cousin's best friend is you know like uh, his his stepdaughter and all the like all these small little connections that make the world so seem so small. Uh, so this is how I get introduced to CrossFit is that like I'm into fitness I'm into martial arts and my family's like oh you got to meet Rob. I was like great I meet Rob and he's just a heck of a guy 
and he and he gives me a book. He was like, "Listen, you need to read this book." And that book was Starting Strength, all right, which is a super classic book when it comes to strength training. Uh, you know, outside of the low bar, high bar back squat dynamic and and conversation, this is like this is like Bible if you want to learn some basics of strength training. So if you have if you're out there and you haven't read this book, you know, please, 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 please go get it. So he gives me the book. And he gets me, he said, listen, I know you're probably into the CrossFit thing, but just make sure you read this book. So I start playing around with CrossFit 2009. In graduate school, I moved to Korea in 2010, and I'm following the main site workout. This is when I ran my first 10K, did Fran for the first time. I did some of these early girls, CrossFit girls workout, and totally fell in love with the intensity and the style of training and the novelty of it all. And so as I started to get more into my own training, people started to notice and they asked me to start to coach them. So I start to coach people in my spare time while I'm in graduate school studying business. And here at the time, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go work for a big company. I'm going to go be on this like corporate trajectory. So me, just the, the coaching and stuff, that was just part of my hustle so I could make sure I was, you know, had a little money in my pocket during grad school. Uh, but that continues to evolve. We're like, now I'm, I'm really loving this sport and this thing called CrossFit. And I'm also accruing a set of skills in business school that I believe, no, maybe I'll consider entrepreneurship one day, one day, someday. And so I transition. I become a uh, strategist, basically a, uh, a managerial consultant in the, in the hospitality industry. But I'm still practicing CrossFit and I'm still coaching people at night for free. And I had this moment where there was like a girl relationship thing happening that I wanted to go back to Korea for, but I also saw it as an opportunity to make a clean break and start to go into the fitness industry. So in 2012, I got my level one certification for CrossFit. And in 2013, I was back in Seoul, South Korea, and now I was like really getting heavy into the CrossFit thing. And I ended up getting a job with Reebok CrossFit Sentinel One, which is founded in one of the coolest CrossFit gyms ever, founded by a guy named Cody Hunter. And this was where I really got my CrossFit chops. And the 2013-2014 timeline is when Barbell Shrugged is really starting to catch on and it catch its big mainstream wave. They're doing some of the huge shows, okay? They're doing like, yeah, they're, they're starting to, become synonymous with CrossFit. Anybody that was doing CrossFit in 2014 was listening to Barbell Shrug. It basically is as absolute as it gets. And so I'm now, as I've mentioned m many times on this show, becoming a fan of these guys, not just because they are cool, but because they're from Memphis, which is where I'm from. And that was so cool to me that these guys from my hometown were doing this cool new thing. It's this podcast thing. It's this uh, they, they had the video episodes. It was so cool. And I, uh, so I'm getting into CrossFit outside of the Memphis CrossFit community, but inside the Memphis CrossFit community, these guys are the scene. Okay. So in 2014, I make my way back to Memphis. I make a small move. Uh, to me, it felt like a big move, but I'm making all these small decisions to like pursue what I want to choose entrepreneurship, I'm choosing CrossFit, I'm seeing the picture of maybe owning my own gym one day, then I land this beautiful dream coaching job where the only thing that could distract me was like getting offered ownership. And in 2014, Barbell Shrugged was advertising for like a marketing position and I applied for the job but ultimately decided, hey, I want to get as much coaching as I can and I wasn't the right fit for the job but I got introduced to someone through a, a few random exchanges, a guy named Justin Lamance, and Justin owned a gym in Memphis called CrossFit Hit and Run. He had also owned a gym called CrossFit Carrierville, which was co-founded by Mike Bledsoe and Doug Larson, the owners of CrossFit Faction or Faction uh, CrossFit Memphis Faction Strength and Conditioning. And so, in 2014, I was offered a an opportunity to be a manager and co-owner of a expansion of CrossFit hit and run in 2014. So I said yes to that. 
and then by April or May of 2014, I'm back in Memphis in the CrossFit scene. But I'm new. The guys are traveling. I don't get to meet too many of the guys early. I see Bledsoe from time to time. I see Doug Larson from time to time. But mostly, I'm living in my CrossFit hit-and-run world. But as the guys started to pick up steam, and as the crew moves to California, the the Memphis crew, guys like Alex Macklin, guys like Mike McGoldrick, uh, guys like Shep Tate, these people start to be, uh, Kurt Mulliken, elevated in their role with the growing, expanding Barbell Shrug crew. And by the time we get into the story where we are now, which is June of 2015, now we've gotten to stuff like... Uh, some of my favorite, most iconic things, the things I remember the most was like the window of gains episode. Do y'all remember that? Where they talked about the window after training, where that was like your primary window of gains, where your food was going to be optimized the most. They even made a t-shirt. It was literally a window a big with big beefy arms getting like a big meal in after a workout. And then they also had the how to add mass to that ass episode. Oh my God, this is shit is so funny. Alex Macklin. Had They did a test where they laid Alex Macklin belly down on a platform and they put two standard bumper plates on a barbell. And so the, the test if you, is if you had enough mass on that ass when you try to roll the barbell over your butt, it won't go, it won't go through, all right? <laughs> and Alex passed the test. I remember that episode so well. And it seems like they're also about to do, in the timeline, he hasn't talked about it yet, but they do a two-part series with Julian Pinot, which completely blew my mind and forever altered my approach to strength and conditioning. And I, I think it's almost, I mean, it, at the time, it was widely considered the most mind-blowing philosophy ch- shift on training that, that, hadn't, uh, that hadn't been heard before on Barbell Shrug. And so a lot of people widely considered that to be the best interview and most impactful that they had done. So Julian... Oh, man, if I can just, like, loop more history in here. Julian, eventually, because of this episode that they do with Barbell Shrug, Barbell Shrug put so many people on the map, and Julian was one of them. There's, like, life before and after Barbell Shrugged. I've heard Julian Pinot say that. I've heard Mark England say that. I've heard a lot of people say that. So Julian eventually gets invited into the CrossFit Invictus community. CrossFit Invictus was founded by C.J. Martin, C.J. Martin was a protege of James Fitzgerald, the winner of the original CrossFit Games. Okay, James was a member of the CrossFit Santa Cruz community, all right, which is the original gym. Now we've closed the lineage loop just to show you how all these little pieces are intertwined into my life and show you where we are in, the, in Chris's timeline and how that lays over my own personal timeline is that, yes, like, all these little facets, these small connections, paint this much larger, this bigger picture of the of the intimate origins of CrossFit and how I am, how I'm uh, so blessed to have been a part of that. And so, even though I never fully uh, got to know Chris or Barbell Shrugged, in in a, in a way, I felt like our destinies or our timelines were intertwined because of my. Uh, relationship to the CrossFit origins through one of the first fire breathers. And now that I'm in, you know, at this point in Chris's story, like I said, June 28th, 2015, I am like peak CrossFit experience. I own my, I co-own a gym. We're training every Saturday with, you know, the likes of the, some of the coolest and pioneer CrossFitters, I'm seeing CTP and and Mike and Doug and Chris Moore just in passing, like on the regular. I'm in a way feel like I'm on this inside, uh, like I got a backstage pass as as to what is going on with with the Barbell Shrug guys. And if you know your history even further, you'll know that when eventually they pass the torch, and I guess we'll 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 re uh, readdress this when it, when we get there. When they eventually pass the torch of the podcast to Mike McGee, Alex, Kurt, and the other Mike, when they eventually pass the torch, those guys did the show in CrossFit Hit and Run downtown. 
All right, so I'm the Midtown location. I'm coaching pretty much every Saturday at the Downtown location. This is now the new hub of Barbell Shrugged Memphis chapter. That eventually happens, you know, not not too long after this. And so, yo, I I was seeing this way up close and personal at this time, and it again is just a little bit of a window into my history with CrossFit because I don't talk about training so much. I don't. Uh, on this show, I don't talk about my relationship to CrossFit so much on this show, but you know, guys, like I just anybody that's listening to this, I wasn't just you know drinking the Kool Aid, guys. Like I was fucking bathing in it. All right, I was deep, deep, deep into the CrossFit scene, into the CrossFit game, and into the CrossFit culture. And so Chris was a huge, huge part of changing the way that I thought about training. And by extension, the way that I thought about living. And it's in seminar bits of information like I'm about to share with you, which is going to go on for a good little bit, where Chris uh, and I's uh, fate start to overlap. This is when I'm as close to the Barbell Shrugged crew as I've ever been. And this is where Chris and Mike and Doug are putting out some of the best work that they ever did together. This is all happening right now. That was fun. Thank you for letting me share. What I'm going to do now is pass you over to the great Chris Moore, and you'll get a little inside look at why you can receive big strength from small moves. Catch you next time. So I want to start off. Accessory... The words you hear in a weight room sometimes can be really confusing. You hear, obviously, there's your main focus. You guys are seeing Olympic weightlifting today. Who, who here uh, is training weightlifting in any way, learning the snatch and the clean jerk? Are you doing crossfit? So you're performance-minded. So obviously, to you guys, like the, most, the most important thing would be getting better at the snatch and clean jerk. You want to know the squat better. These are the prime drivers of adaptation. These make you stronger and more muscular and less body fat. This is where the money's at, right? That's your focus. But I think that said, people get lost in thinking that that's everything. Uh, there are other kinds of lifts of various degrees. Of course, if you're a whale, there's something like a squat is an assistance move. It directly helps you snatch better. Uh, but there are other kinds of things. You can call them accessory moves, which is the Tyler's talk. You might hear them referred to as supplemental. Uh, you might think of them as the small, not very functional things that aren't as good as snatches, that might be like the default setting. When you see somebody doing a pull down, a back raise, uh, medicine ball throws, dumbbell presses, you might think whatever, but you don't think they're necessarily as good or as functional as performance increasing as a snatch or a squat. I think my point would be, that mindset is not what I found in all my years of powerlifting to be that helpful. And then anybody you look at who is really, really good on a platform, that might be a strong man, a way up their power, the people who you look to for, for inspiration and have become a stronger, better athlete. Rich Froning, uh, Zadrunas Savickas, the strongest strongman of all strongmen currently. From this range of strength down to just fitness, I can't think of anybody who didn't spend a long time doing a lot of small things. The small things accumulate in very big ways and enable the big things. I think a much better example is this jar analogy. It's not new to this example, I'll apply it. So you can imagine there's a big jar here in my hands. If I poured in large marbles that would fill that jar. Those could correspond to the snatch, the clean and jerk, uh, the squat. Big important things that take up a lot of space that you think are most important. And they are, right? But there's still so much space in that jar because you could pour in, let's say, smaller marbles and fill up what you thought was all full. You could pour in sand. There's corners that are not occupied. There's things you aren't doing that you could do to get better. That's what people, when you think just function over accessory, you think small versus big, you miss amazing little small opportunities to get strong really fast. Like small things that add up are nutrition, they are hydration, they are sleep. One hour of sleep every night makes the difference between you snatching a PR attempt at the end of the year versus you not being successful at all at the end of the year. Small little things are incredibly cumulative and powerful. So my first point, if you overlook the importance of accessory work and small things, if you say certain things aren't functional over other things, you are leaving fruit on the vine. Opportunities improve that you're dismissing. So we can't have that. 
I want to make a quick point. So that's what it is, and it is important. And we may be making a mistake by overlooking it, but where does it fit in? Uh, I think you can think of the accessory work as being something that helps you perform the main stuff better or helps you uh, perform better after the main fact. So before you do a prime move, before you would snatch, before you would do a big heavy press, before you would squat, a small lift can make a really big improvement on how you perform that lift. A good example is if you're going to do heavy jerks, you just warm up with a bar, but you can also do like uh, exercises for your upper back that would prime and warm up and strengthen your upper back, which for a lot of new lifters, not that this is you, but I am a new all of this for new lifters is a shockingly, astonishingly weak. You have a guy trying to learn how to do a snatch and is getting frustrated by not being able to hold position, yet you have somebody who can't do a bodyweight ring row and hold this position because their upper back musculature is so weak. That's obviously a problem. And if that musculature is weak and uh, uncoordinated and not primed before you try to get a barbell overhead, you have no hope of keeping your shoulders in position. So a little small thing before can maybe add up to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of better reps in the jerk over the course of the year. Yeah, face pulls seem like a small, stupid thing. Done every day, they make the major thing way better. Another example is coming after. So let's say you did that and you snatched and you squatted. That's the focus. On the other side, the bookend of this workout is another opportunity to what? To help the main stuff. Now, what would you do? I think a good example that I thought of, if you're trying to learn like the clean, like a, the starting position. You can, you can practice the starting position and your sequence of pulls and getting in this upright vertical second pull position by doing the clean. And you can also practice that starting position by doing barbell rows. Like a good example is a pin lay row. With just a barbell row, so you'd walk up to a barbell, right? Yeah. You would stand up next to it. You would set up just as you would for a clean. Nothing different. Your mindset's mostly clean. You line up the same ritual that you do for a clean or snatch. You set up. You initiate the pull from the ground the same way. The only difference is instead of going into a clean, you would just do a row. So what that allows you to do is instead of just doing a pull up, instead of just doing some rows, you're doing a thing that builds back strength, which most people need. And you're also thinking the whole time, how will this make me better at setting up for the clean? So that obviously translates over to the next time you go to do actually do cleans, you have more repetitions setting up the bottom part. You're practicing getting good position over and over again. And it's a light, easy thing to do that doesn't get in the way of the cleans. You do extra work, you get there twice as fast by doing a thing that's easy and fun and also brings up your back strength. These two exercises are just examples of incredibly powerful, useful things that are super easy to do. Even if you're hurt, you can get better at the clean by practicing how you set up for the clean. So you can't overlook that. This is a really important point. So I talk about what it is and why it's important and where it would fit in your workout. I want you to think about where it fits also in your career as a lifter. So obviously there's a beginner stage where you are new, you are fresh. You don't have all the muscle you would want. You're not as lean as you want, whatever. What are your biggest needs? You gotta build a base, you gotta put on some muscle mass, you gotta practice using your body. You need some general physical preparedness. You gotta basically get yourself in shape so you can work out. When you rush right to trying to master the snatch and clean jerk and squat and deadlift all right now, all within the first six months or one year of your weightlifting training across it, what will happen? Well, the barbell lifts aren't actually, you're not actually good at lifting the barbell because you're a beginner. You don't snatch much. Doug made a good point earlier today, and so did Mike. Uh, during our flight weightlifting talk, how beginners struggle with the snatch, let's say, because they're trying so hard to get better at snatching and the weight won't go up. And they're so frustrated by that. It's because the weight on the barbell, sorry to say, even though it's hard, is really light. It won't make you strong. And to some extent, the squat also will suffer from that because when you're a beginner, you can squat. Let's say your potential squat is 400 pounds, and because you're a beginner, you squat 200. It's awkward and it feels weird. You're, you're so underneath your potential, you're never gonna get close to actually like tr making yourself strong because you could squat this, you have all this practice to do until you could get there. So if you just try to squat and snatch, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna get better, you're gonna get stronger, but it's gonna take maybe a little bit longer than it should. Now what would a guy like Rich Froning do when he was in high school? What, would, what did Jason Kalipa do? What did every pilot or whale that you know of do? They went into the weight room and they fucked around endlessly for so many reps and so many curls and presses and leg presses and squats and hack squats, front, everything. What does that do? That, that period of play sort of establishes a base of muscle mass. You do all these reps and all these things. 
it helps if somebody's there to say, you might also want to think about you know, full extension and position. You don't want to just be doing bad mechanics. But all that work builds an incredible base. And it's something you can do that covers the ground. It brings you to a level where when you're ready to squat, now you're getting more out of it. You, you get there quicker, and now you can get to the business of lifting heavier sooner. That makes you a lifter, and it puts the primary need on heavy barbell lifts. It's like, what should a good welder do? You should be snatching a clean jerk and heavy. When you see people doing like Bulgarian heavy max training all the time, they're, they don't have any more base to build. They're very good. They're not learning. They're master this lift. They don't even think when they're gym. Their job is to load their bodies heavy and often. Squat as well. That's where they get the most bang for the buck. There is no more base to build. What the assistance lifts then become is a way to maintain your foundation. I have two stories of that. One is from the great Vasily Alexiev. You guys know who Alexiev was? The, the Russian weightlifter. If you don't know your Russian weightlifter, go back and search in the 70s and 80s. You'll see a Russian super heavy weightlifter with the most giant belly you've ever seen, black hair. If you search Alexiev, you're going to find the Michael Jordan of weightlifting. He was the best lifter of his time. Incredible. He was famous. I used to study him when I was in powerlifting in grad school. But I, that was my time to really push the list. One interesting thing he would do is like lots and lots of like glute ham raises. You guys have been on a glute ham raise in the CrossFit gym. Uh, some people do it for abs. It should be done to build your fucking hamstrings and glutes. Is what it is. You raise up. And, but he would do that endlessly, not because it was hard. He could do like he could do like 100 kilos on his back, do back raises and glute ham raises for 20 reps. It was not hard. He did that to maintain and preserve what he had built so that all these barbell repetitions do not begin to eat away at him. So it's a way of you preserving your time to make the most of your barbell lifts. Because if you stop doing what made you strong, you wear away your foundation. That's actually the second story I have from Louis Simmons, who was, I never had a coach. I didn't really want a coach. That's my mistake. But the only guy I let coach me when I was powerful was Louis Simmons. One thing he told me was that, um, I was getting ready to do a meeting. I asked him, what changes should I make before I go to the competition? Should I back off this stuff and focus on this stuff? I said, should I cut out some of this and do more of this? When I brought up the idea of like cutting out all these small movements, he's like, why would you do that? I was like, well, what do you mean? Because I want to do more squatting, like peak. And he goes, all that stuff made you strong. You don't keep pushing it hard, but if you stop doing that stuff, what do you think will happen? It will start to degrade your foundation will start to show up. You'll start to get exit pains. You'll start to not respond as well. It won't be as durable when those lifts start eating into you. So that's a consideration to keep in mind. Another thing I'll say is you've been a beginner, a lifter, then what happens after you peak? Like uh, I'm now 34. I know I look uh, incredibly handsome for my age. But the truth is like for a powerlifter who was uh, a football player before and who didn't really do a, any pharmaceutical aids, like I just tried the best of what I had. You can't really squat heavy every day forever. Like when you're 40, you're not going to be able to be all-star CrossFit person. Just like Michael Jordan could be Michael Jordan forever. At some point, the peak passes. But here's the thing, it's kind of like what you realize at the peak is that the majority of your whole life in fitness, not beginner, not lifter, the majority of your existence will be as a a person who used to be able to do these things but now wants to keep doing awesome shit. You want to stay strong. You're not going to be able to snatch a PR, but you can get better at snatching, you get better at all this stuff, but it takes a different strategy. What is that strategy? Well, you kind of revert a little bit. No longer can you keep doing heavy barbell lifts because why? Tendinitis, uh, lack of sleep because you have two kids. You know, life starts encroaching and doesn't allow you to do what you would want to do all the time in the gym. You can't necessarily go as heavy as you'd want to go. You can't necessarily recover from the stuff. You used to be able to do five sets of five squat. Guess what? You do one set of five heavy now, and you get knee tendonitis. What do you do to get strong? This is the thing I brought up with Glenn Pennelly years ago. He said the best use for lifters with assistance lifts, with dumbbell presses and back raises and glute ham raises, uh, even some variation of squat. Like I do a lot of machine belt squats now. I have a pit shark machine. It's basically you suspend the, the load from your hips, and you can squat all you want without having to load your arms because my shoulders don't recover that well from squats anymore. So how can I get good at squatting? How can I still set PRs? I find a way to squat. If the shoulder won't maintain while I have squat heavy weights, I gotta get on a machine to do that. So that's when assistance work can really help me stay strong, even though I can't do what I used to. Because again, there's a gap in your training that you can fill with a very small, simple movement.
Guys, we got two more points to make before I dehydrate fully from the sweating and I turn it into mandrake uh, A final note on load. Uh, I think the biggest mistake I ever made on these small movements, back raises, glute hand raise stuff, I maybe took them too seriously because I want to do everything heavy all the time. You can't do everything heavy max intensity all the time because that's just not reasonable. You can't recover from that. That, and if you do that, the things that are supposed to be moderate are gonna be heavy instead and they're gonna suck resources something else. Probably, like if you're doing max effort box jumps till you fucking die or something in a gym that is just so punishing you can't recover from it, do you think you'll be able to snatch Monday morning heavy or squat five by five front squat? This is no way. You gotta like pick your battles and choose what you're gonna work on. What's the most important thing you can work on right now? When you're doing a barbell lift, that is important to load that lift. Move fast, move well, move crisp. When you're doing a kettlebell swing, what is the main focus? It's efficiency, it's accumulation of effort, it's trying to do each rep better and better, not with more intensity. You're not trying to see how heavy of a kettlebell you can swing. It's pointless. Like I wrote a, uh, I worked with a guy to put up an article on our, our website, barbellshrug.com. It was on kettlebell sport. And it's a cool sport because you see, when people want to take kettlebell training to the extremes, what do they do? They move more efficiently. They try to do a better job each time. They try to be more and more relaxed. They try to accumulate more with less fatigue. You look at weightlifting, weightlifting is all high force, high power, precision. When you train it, you can look at that sport for elements of how best to train that sport, and that's what you see. But for some reason, people do kettlebell swings. They try to, they try to do as much as possible, as heavy as possible, try to do 10 reps, five reps, and show off. The better use is to intentionally keep it moderate and make it easy and just go through the motions and just accumulate reps and just build a base. And if you do that, and you make room for fast build movements, so if there's something fast, there's something in between that's your accessory lifts, there's something heavy because you know your priorities. When you put all that together, your jar is now completely full. You don't just have the big things, you have the small things and the medium things too. Now you have a, what we call a comprehensive training program. Now on the days you can't do as heavy as you like, you can do something. Now when you're injured, you can keep training. Now when you're not ready to be uh, on the platform, you can do what's required to get you there quicker so one day you can compete. I think all that comes down to is a focus on where are the gaps in your training, where are the opportunities, and what are you overlooking because you think it's small and unimportant. So to close, mind your gaps. A small thing doesn't mean it's not an incredibly important thing. So that would be my take on accessory lifts. Uh, you guys want to add anything else to that? Nails. Nails? Now, you guys have probably different training goals there. If you have any questions or whatever, I'd love to maybe help resolve them. If not, and you have no questions, and I just did a job of sweatily answering everything, then I'm going to high-five myself. What's up, man? Uh, what do you think about the small of squat routine? What do you say? The small of? Oh, small of. Uh, with squat routines, here's the thing. Squat routines are really intense because they are nothing but the squat. And you just look at it and tell that it's made for the squat. Well, it should because it's made for a small routine. Is, that's a powerlifting program. I think it's a Russian program written for Russian powerlifters yeah. who want to be the best powerlifters in the world who are not beginners, who are, in fact, mercenaries of strength. People who've grown up in the snow in terrible conditions without any kind of technology, with nothing other than the fact that they want to be as strong as possible. When they've been lifting for 20 years and they can't make the squat go up, they start doing that program because it's really intense. If you haven't done much intense powerlifting training, no powerlifting training at all, if you get on an advanced training program, but I just took you right now and dropped you in the west side barbell. So you said weeks. I would say, have you been squatting heavy for 10 years? Progressively. What's your body weight? Yeah, if you can squat 500, 550, I'd say try that program. Because there are people who can. There are people who weigh your body weight and squat 770 pounds. Yeah, the best thing you do, have you done, let's say five by five, three times a week, adding weight each time you squat, starting light, five building up? Like have you done five, three, one, or like a five by five? Have you started out the year and progressed weekly to the end of the year to try to force your squat up as hard, hard as you could with the simplest method possible? That's what I would do before I would do anything that was a specific program. The other danger of that is that people try to take that and put CrossFit around it, which is insane. <laughs> 531 is really a really simple program compared to small. 531 is low volume, it's low frequency, there's not a lot of sets. 
uh, you never do a true max effort, sub-maximal focus. You do sets of five, and after that you do some reps. You never hit what I would call a really heavy set. Jim actually has a program called 531 for power thing where he intentionally goes a little heavier. So I'd say if you haven't ever done a program like 531, which is a specific make yourself stronger program that can also allow you to do CrossFit, that would never consider going to the top. It's like a magic, if you're a magician, if I'm a magician right now, I came out and said, hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chris, I'm a magic, I'm a first place of magic. And I, my first ma trick is I pull a woman out and I cut her in half. And you're all like, whoa, holy shit, that's really cool. I go, right, that's all I got, I gotta go. It'd be like a waste of, the first thing to do is like rabbit out of the hat. And if you haven't seen my tricks, you're like, oh, hey, this guy pulled a rabbit out of his hat. I would then go the next trick up, and then I would, I would save the biggest trip, trick for when I had nothing else to show you. That's how strength training kind of works. The best program is something that maybe you won't need to do for another 15 years, 10 years. Like I say, powers at the top of the game are, they can still be in their mid-30s. Travis Mash was a power at the top of his game. He's right in there. He squatted 1,000 pounds. He did it. I think his peak was 33, 34, 32. He's been squatting since a teenager. If he would have tried small up as a teenager, it probably would have crushed him. So I'd say I'd warn you to keep that in, in mind. You gotta think exactly where you are and what you need, not what is the technically the, the most intense thing you could do. I'd say if there's something simple you could do, like 51, do that before you try anything else. You might end up being an exceptional squatter. You, you could, you can. But you need to save the hardest things for some time later. Until you've done, until you picked all the lowest hanging fruit, until you've tried the basic things and gotten the most out of them, I wouldn't move on. Because you'll find a lot of knee pain. You'll have a hell of a time recovering. Maybe you can do it if you also. Uh, if you did 531 for one year and you intentionally scaled back everything else to give yourself time to, to get strong and you ate good and you made sure you slept eight hours a night and you keep your stress low, in one year you wouldn't recognize yourself. It, the complexity is not what you're after. You're after rhythm and progression. So if you just got a little better to squat every day, at the end of the year you're insanely strong. Like the, there's nothing magical about the program. You just got to think what would be best for you. And my, my hunch would be that just trying to move the squat aggressively for one year with focus would, would do wonders for you. Like try 5 to, 5 to 1 works for most people most of the time. That's why it's awesome. How crazy is it to Metron and be my father and squat? So like right now, I, uh, do it. I just started squatting like very recently. I came from like obstacle course racing. Yeah. And uh, like I opened a box <clears throat> specifically to train obstacle course racing guys. But uh, now I want to get into like lifting. So three days a week I started with just a barbell. Yeah. And I'm at 235 on my back squat, 555. Like at what point, because now it's starting to like, you know, I know it's baby weight, but now it's starting to like grind out. You know, like he was asking, you uh, from that so you've done, done running, obstacle course stuff, you have a history of being endurance, endurance running yeah. stuff. So he has an endurance background, and he's kind of new to lifting. And so how long have you been doing uh, lifting? Uh, I'm at 235, going up 15 pounds a week, so I don't know. Like 12 so weeks. first things first, he's going up 15 pounds a week, so I wouldn't change anything. If you could add 15 pounds a week to a lift, you should have a complaint about anything. So whatever you're doing now is great. What you'll find is, uh, when you're, like a great book for you would be um, Mark Ripito's uh, Principles of Strength Training. It's like a, it, it has a section on beginners and intermediates. He describes very simply how you, when you know it's time to move on. The first thing is, if you're getting stronger, you don't need to touch much of anything. Because guess what? There will be a time when you will not get stronger very easily. You have to fight tooth and nail to get anything out of it. So. Like people will be making, pro you'll get emails, like people will say like, I'm doing really great, I'm making progress, my squat's going up X, Y, Z, but I'm not, this isn't good enough for me. I want more quicker. <laughs> when you, if, you, if I could just read it out loud to them, they'd be like, yeah, you're right, this is unreasonable. <laughs> uh, to put on 50 pounds a week is off. I'd say the best thing you do is, if, for now, if you squat three times a week, every time you do squat, try to keep squatting just a little bit more. Don't get greedy, just try to add five, 10 pounds. Yeah, I go up like five pounds. When it gets hard, that's because now, I talked to you earlier how if you could squat 400 and you only squat 200, you have this gap. Like, you have this potential. You haven't done this work yet, but you could, and once you do, you'll get here. So, as you start getting to your potential, the work you do comes with a higher cost. You're close to your potential, so that, that work now eats into you more. You have to recover harder. So what you will find is that you put the weight on the bar, 15 pounds becomes five, becomes, oh my God, this was easy last week, it's crushed me this week. Pretty soon you hit a barrier. The thing to do would be first, <laughs> first back down, take a few weeks to unload and rest, 
and then move the weights down a little bit and see over the course of five, six, seven, eight weeks, if you couldn't slowly build back up to where you could just exceed that plateau point. So when you hit a barrier, back up, and then march back to it and basically try to barely exceed that. And you'll probably find you'll exceed it. Okay, you still don't need to make big changes. You'll progress again and you'll hit that again. And what you want to do is back off and give yourself a chance to heal first and recover and to freshen up and then try again. If it doesn't work, then you have to think about reducing the frequency. You can't just squat three times a week then. Now you have to do something like Mark would say is intermediate. So instead of squatting three days a week, three or five, one of those days has to be heavy, one would have to be lighter, one would have to be very light. Because now you have to turn your focus into one time a week trying for more load, not three times a week. And then as you became a really good squatter, what would happen? The time would have to spread out even more. So instead of trying every week for a PR, you become what a powder is. You'd have to try for a PR maybe once a month. So week one, two, three, it'd be covering new ground with better form, with better technique, with trying better. And you would only try to then take a weight heavier that fourth week or the third week. If you're an Olympic gold medalist like Klokov or somebody, or not, he didn't win a gold medal, but if you're a high level weightlifter, you might notice that guy leaves the Olympics and trains mercilessly his full time job three times a day for four years or whatever to return to the Olympics. And he might lift less, he might lift five kilos on his total more. That's, you can see how the spaces get so tight and the recovery gets so tough. By the time you get to that high level, there's no more room for error. The weight is so high that your ability to recover is so marginally thin. There's no room for mistakes. You can see how his progression of the Klokov becomes a, a way of like, it gets harder and harder to recover. How do you space out the loading so you have a better shot of keeping lifting? How do you keep from tearing yourself apart, basically? So the answer is right now it's doing good, but you'll have to find, you have to spread out your workouts more in time. Now, if I was gonna like deload, is there like a, like a, a rough number, like 70% or like 80 like Yeah, the thing with unloading, whenever you feel like you need a break from lifting, I tend to, to not like going too light. I like to leave a little bit of weight on the bar. So like if we're doing cleans, plus say squats, 70% would be pretty light for everybody. You could do even like 70, 80, whatever. I wouldn't go too much light on that. But really what you gotta think about is cutting the reps way down. You can go into the gym and lift something that's pretty heavy and put it down. That is like, you can lift heavy weights and not be, not be in trouble with recovery. People think you gotta be like steroided it up and have all these advantages to be able to lift heavy. You gotta have all that if you're gonna punish yourself with reps. That's where the damage comes in. That's what's so hard about UC Rich Froning training. The guy keeps going, keeps moving, and keeps recovering. You can do any one of the things he does, but you can't do it all, all the time. You just fall apart. Your, recovery, your ability to recover and adapt to stuff is really, it's really tough. So you can keep lifting heavy, but strip the weights, or strip the, the sets and reps down to almost, if you usually do three sets of five, you might do three sets of one. Couple more reps, let's do some quick potentiating, fast, quick lifts, say percent, and you can cut it. So it's just enough to not get weaker, but it's not enough to cause any damage. So like start with same percent, cut the volume way low. Way lower than you think you would want, and then see how you feel. That's my advice. The bad thing to do is to keep the weight really low and to keep doing reps, because you think that's lighter. But if you added up all the volume, you'll be doing more work than last week. You're supposed to be resting, and now you're beating yourself up more. That's a mistake people make with unloading. Uh, if you're going to take a break, so if you're going to work your weight up on squats, so I do 300, 310, 320, 320 feels heavy. On week four, I might do like 250, 260, 270 for a couple sets of one to three reps. Something that's obviously easy, but it's not like a joke. But you don't want to do like 270 pounds for sets of 510 because you think that's light. Because then the repetition adds up and now you aren't recovering. In fact, you're doing more damage. The total volume is what will eat you, not, not necessarily what's on the bar. Okay. If you lift something heavy, it keeps you tuned and sharp. And it, if you're working a snatch, you need a little weight on the bar in order to make sure your mechanics are right because having form at 40, 50, 60, 70% is different than having form at 80 or 90, you know? That there, usually what you would see, like if you did five, three, one for squats, you would do, you'd work up set of, set of five, you might do X amount of reps and you would move on to assistance. That could be, let's say, it could be a stiff leg deadlift. So that's a common one. It could be, it could be leg presses, it could be step ups or lunges. It could be after, because then you don't want to do that before heavy. You could do something that would warm you up 
before you squat it, but you don't want to do anything that causes a lot of fatigue because you want to do your squats. So afterwards, you would pick an exercise. Let's say you know you have weak hips. Hinging movements would be great. Uh, this is not like a deadlift. You don't want to do this for like heavy sets of five. The best place to start would be like three to four sets, anywhere from like eight reps to even like 15 reps. Uh, there's no magic formula. You don't want it heavy. Uh, you don't want to do like a heavy set of three max effort on a small movement. Do some reps in the 10 to 15 range, two to three sets, maybe even four. See how you respond. You still work up week to week like you would a squat. So you can do, if week one you did three sets of 10 on a simple movement, you can do the same reps next week with just a little bit more weight. You can do three sets of 12 instead of 10. Uh, you can do, like in CrossFit, you can do a total amount of reps instead of sets. So you can say, I need to do 100 reps these back raises. This week it took me a lot of sets. Two months from now, I did it in three sets. Because I could do three sets of 15 or three sets of 20, no problem. That's a way of just making sure you're progressing. So you don't need heavy weight. You just need some way of making sure that this is getting easier. That's how you know you're making progress. Anybody else need anything? Cool. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the rest of the evening. All right. Yeah, yeah, all right. Never say never. Never say never.